Lord, that's over. <laughs> that's what the uh, old Presbyterian minister used to say, I understand, after he fell down a flight of stairs, head over feet, got to the bottom of the steps, looked up, brushed himself off, and said, well, thank the Lord, that's over. A man quite convinced of that God plans the details of his life. Thank you, Lord, for just getting me through that. Uh, it is a delight to see your faces again. I thank you for your very kind welcome. And uh, as uh, Mark mentioned, this is going to be a two-part sermon. He asked me earlier to uh, uh, come this Sunday and then again on the first Sunday in August. And I just couldn't uh, resist the opportunity to get into something that was a little more lengthy and a little more detailed on that. I commented to Cindy after finishing uh, my preparations yesterday. I said, you know, some are going to look at this like trying to drink through a, a fire hose, drink from a fire hose, because there's a lot of information. I said, what I really want is for everybody to feel like I'm taking that hose and just spraying it all in the air and the water's just coming down and refreshing us. So if you ever think fire hose, check your thoughts, say, no, 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 no. I'm just gonna take this in, and if there's details that you miss that you want, I understand there's a recording, so you can do that. Or you can always contact me, too. You see, a few years ago, I was asked to preach at a church in Abuja, the capital of Nigeria. Uh, this particular church is a multicultural congregation of English-speaking Nigerians who have studied and worked in the West, and of citizens from other countries who are posted at the embassies of their nations there in the capital city of Nigeria. Now, they asked me to preach to address the topic of the love of God and the culture of Christ. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? The culture of Christ. What, they asked, is the culture that we share together in Christ, which supersedes the cultures of our various national heritages? And there is, in fact, a culture brought from heaven itself, which is distinctive from all other cultures of the world. God tells us that he is gathering a people to himself out of every tribe and language and nation to be his worshipers with him in eternity. What binds us together is the culture of the kingdom of God, the culture of Christ. Jesus compared the coming of the kingdom to a small, unnoticeable mustard seed. Maybe you remember that parable. All three synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this particular parable so you know it must have been very important to Jesus. Matthew records the parable this way. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. A tiny mustard seed starts out like a garden plant, but it can grow into an expansive tree some 10 feet to 30 feet high and wide. 
What the Lord Jesus gives us in this parable is a picture of a kingdom and its culture, which will overwhelm all others, but it will do so imperceptibly. It seems to me that most Christians today do not realize how powerfully God is working in the world because we don't see awesome displays of God's power defeating his enemies here and now. If you truly believe the Bible, then you know that one day that will come, but not yet. There is a now and a not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. Sometimes we get so used to the not yet that we lose sight of the fact that God is actively bringing about his kingdom now. So the purpose of my sermon today is to encourage you and to build up your faith by demonstrating some of the dramatic effects that the culture of Christ has already had throughout world history and is now having. Our sermon text gives us reason for encouragement. So let's look now at part of the Bible's description of the final events at the end of time in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8, and I will focus today on one key phrase. Hear now the word of God Almighty. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the final heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water, the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. O Lord, you are our God. We will exalt you and praise your name, for in perfect faithfulness you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. By your Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we may be amazed at your power and your wisdom. Do this, we pray, for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That Sunday in Nigeria, I offered three observations about the culture of Christ to that church of many cultures 
I'd like to share these with you today and when we meet again. First, that the culture of Christ produces great contrasts with the values which humanity holds. Second, that the culture of Christ produces real consequences in human history. Finally, that the culture of Christ should produce a radical personal change in the one who chooses to follow Jesus. My conclusion will be this, that as followers of Christ, you and I have had a change in citizenship, and now we are to spend our earthly lives both learning the culture of Christ and living it out before a world whose earthly culture is at war with heaven. This is such a broad subject that I decided to split this into two sermons and to consider these so that we may consider these points properly. Today I'll take us halfway through my points, and when I return in August, we'll conclude the rest, Lord willing. Let's start with point one that the culture of Christ produces great contrasts with the values which humanity holds. Many years ago, a college student from an Asian country was studying in the United States. He enjoyed coming to our Christian ministry's fellowship outreach to foreign students at the University of Oregon, but he really had no interest in Christianity. He had much more interest in chasing girls and partying. Yet he continued to come to our Christian events. Now, one of those events was a weekend retreat with a Christian speaker who strongly encouraged these international students to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. The next week, this Asian student met with our campus minister and announced, I have become a Christian. Now, our campus minister had never seen much evidence before this weekend that the student was being drawn to the gospel, so politely but skeptically he replied, tell me how this happened. <laughs> And with great excitement, this Asian student explained, well, after the retreat, I went back to my dormitory and I got on my knees, I made my decision to become a follower of Christ, and I prayed to my God and asked him to transfer my file to Mr. Jesus. <laughs> what innocent wisdom. Transfer my file, my account transfer my citizenship to the kingdom of Jesus. This foreign student understood the contrast between the culture he had grown up with versus the culture of Christ. He could see the difference, and he knew his decision meant a complete change of allegiance. Now, your brothers and sisters, like this international student, now by God's grace, our files have been transferred to Mr. Jesus, and now we share a greater citizenship. We are no longer trapped within the culture of the kingdom of this world and its evil prince. And that's why the Apostle Paul can write, our citizenship is in heaven. Let's look at this word, culture. What is culture? I suppose we can say culture is a collection of the attitudes, feelings, values, and behaviors that define a group of people. That group of people may be as small as a family or as large as a nation. That group 
shares a core set of beliefs about how the world works and therefore how we should live with each other in our community, whatever its size. Each culture is built upon what the members believe, uh, what they think is true, and these convictions shape their actions and coalesce into a set of cultures, uh, uh, customs, that when repeated generation after generation become a culture. Customs which characterize these various cultures are an outgrowth, outgrowth of what each group values most and what they believe to be good and bad. For instance, an American man came to Africa to help translate the Bible into a tribal language. He rented a house which had a huge mango tree and he watched as those mangoes ripened week after week looking forward to the day when he could pick them off the tree. One morning he awoke to find his mango tree filled with small African boys. They were picking the mangoes and tossing them to a man who would put them in a basket. So immediately, he rushed outside to chase away the thieves who were stealing his mangoes. What he did not realize was that in this African tribal culture, the mango tree does not belong to the one who owns the house. The mangoes belong to the man who planted the tree. The missionary thought that this old man was stealing from him when actually... While he lived in this African culture, he was stealing from the old man. Two different cultures, and based on their separate cultures, each man thought the other was wrong. Now, one could say, well, this is an unfortunate misunderstanding because neither man was really wrong. Really? That prompts me to ask this question. Can cultures be compared and judged? Can cultural differences be put side by side so that we can say one cultural value is better than another? Can we come to the point where we say that one cultural value is right and the other wrong? That one cultural value is good and the other is evil? I think we do judge. You see, the human mind has been wired by our creator to distinguish things by observing and identifying their differences and then naming these differences. Red, blue, water, fire. And the human heart is wired to decide one thing is good and the other thing is bad or even evil. Now let's think about some of the major cultural choices that have defined the nations throughout human history. What about governments? Is a king or a dictator better than a government under the control of the elected representatives of the people? Which culture is better? Why? What about resources? Should each person have the freedom to keep what they earn and to choose how their earnings should be spent and invested? In Nigeria, if you make it big, well then, it's the custom that you share your financial good fortune with all your extended family and your friends. Of course, maybe 
it is better that citizens give their earnings to the government so that the decision-making can be centralized and the nation's wealth can be spread out among all the people or put into important government projects. Which culture is better? Why? What about liberty? Is the culture better when every person is viewed as equal in worth? Or does a culture accomplish more when uh, accomplish more and become great in the eyes of human history when a few elites exert a totalitarian charge over the population that they decide is inferior. I mean, after all, where would the world be without the pyramids or the Roman Colosseum or the Great Wall of China? You see, we do judge. As I described these contrasting cultures, which have been embraced by various nations and kingdoms and empires throughout history, you and I were making judgments about which culture was better. We all choose to accept that some things are right and their opposites are wrong. And it is in our nature to make value judgments, moral judgments, especially about major cultural patterns that shape nations and civilizations. So what does this have to do with the culture of Christ. You see, the culture of Christ is often the opposite of the cultures of the kingdoms of this world. Since we were born citizens of this world, this means that you and I very naturally tend toward, lean toward the culture of this world, not the culture of Christ. Even as Christians, we are tempted to use the world's culture to accomplish kingdom goals. Let me tell you about the time when I made a big mistake by leaning on the culture of Christ. As a young man, I worked for the U.S. space program. I was a protocol officer for NASA in Houston during the years we were landing on the moon. And I was already a committed Christian. Everyone around me knew it. Some teased me, but they all seemed to respect me, too. One day, we got a new supervisor who enjoyed manipulating people and toying with their feelings. A coworker informed me that our new supervisor had been spreading rumors, rumors that accused me of some awful things which attacked my character. This coworker was not a Christian, but I took his advice and I decided I must confront my supervisor. The next morning, I stormed into the office and in front of everyone, I rebuked this man forcefully. I wanted to tell him off. And when I whirled around to leave the room, the very moment that I walked through the door, the Holy Spirit of God seemed to shout in my mind, son, you have just made a very serious error. You have not acted like a citizen of heaven. Your Bible tells you that it is God who gave this wicked man authority over you, and you have just shown great disrespect toward that authority. I had not acted like a citizen of heaven. Instead, I had reverted to the culture of this world. Within minutes, I had apologized to my supervisor and to his boss. I think it may have restored the honor I sought to bring to Christ. I also think my supervisor was disappointed because now he could no longer manipulate me to say I had acted like a hypocrite. Anyway, he was soon gone. 
I sometimes look back on the late 1970s and remember the attempt of American evangelicals to organize politically under the banner of the moral majority. We used the politics, the culture of politics, to try to force spiritual change on American culture, but our efforts did not produce any kind of real spiritual change in our nation. Jesus said that true spiritual change in people must come from within. The water that I give people, he said, will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So the culture of Christ declares that a change happens from within. The culture of the world insists that you must force people to obey. Once again, the culture of Christ is often the opposite of the culture of the kingdoms of this world. Do you remember the uproar that happened when Apostle Paul first preached in Thessalonica? As we read in the book of Acts, those who opposed the gospel rushed to the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Yes, the culture of this world is often the opposite of the culture of the kingdoms of this world. Pardon me, the culture of Christ is the opposite. And this brings me to my second point. The culture of Christ produces consequences in human history. For the next few minutes, I want to lead you into a journey through history. I want us to step back from today and take a broad look at human history over the last 2,000 years. We, we need to look at the big picture of how the entry of the culture of Christ into our world 2,000 years ago has been transforming our world with remarkable consequences. Once again, we hear God declare to us, Behold, I am making all things new. As we look back at human history since Jesus came, we can see that God has indeed been progressively reshaping human cultures. When the culture of Christ began to confront the kingdoms and the cultures of this world, the world began to be transformed. Historian Rodney Stark has written an insightful analysis of human history entitled The Victory of Reason. How Christianity Led to Freedom, Capitalism, and Western Success. Now, Professor Stark convincingly outlines how Christianity and the institutions related to Christianity are, in fact, directly responsible for the most significant intellectual, political, scientific, and economic breakthroughs of the last 2,000 years. And he points out that this transformation took root in the West. Surprisingly, it took root in Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire had left Europe in shambles, far behind the more advanced cultures of China and the Islamic nations. Throughout history, though, human rights, economic opportunities, and even science found only brief connections with human cultures until the principles of the culture of Christ took slow, steady root in the soil of Europe and later in North America. 
Let me point out three factors in the culture of Christ which made this happen. One, the supremacy of reason. Two, the rise of individualism and free will. And three, the expectation of progress. First, let's look at the supremacy of reason. Throughout history, people have concluded that there must be unseen forces that shape the world, something spiritual and difficult to know. It's something that humans can't see, so we ponder and meditate and guess and speculate. And throughout mankind's history, these meditations to perceive the unseen and unknowable have, proved, have provided the unique shapes of the world's many religions, both formal religions and regional folk religions. Where Christianity is different from all the other world religions is that Christianity begins with a God who wants to be known by his people and who has revealed himself in a collection of writings gathered by his people over a period of 1,500 years and then carefully preserved by his people for the last 2,000 years. Other world religions insist that the gods are unknowable. Those who practice these religions rely merely on meditation and introspection, not on reason, not on deduction. Truth, they say, is mysterious. And truth becomes different for each different person as each one tries to sort things out. It is Christianity alone which embraces reason and logic as the primary guide to sorting out what God intends for us to understand from the Bible. Rodney Stark comments, From early days, the church fathers taught that reason was the supreme gift from God and the means to progressively increase our understanding of Scripture and Revelation. So when people realized and believed that God wanted us to understand him, that's theology, they also started to recognize that we should use reason to better understand how and why his creation works. It is this very use of rational theology applied to the practical world, to the physical and social world, that explains, as Professor Stark writes, why science arose in Europe but failed to do so in China, ancient Greece, or in Islamic cultures. The religions of these cultures leaned on mysticism, not on reason-based truth-seeking. In economics, church-inspired reason gave rise to free enterprise, which sparked the spread of economic prosperity throughout all classes of society, not just a small ruling class. This happened, Professor Stark continues, because free enterprise is, in essence, the systematic and sustained application of reason to commerce, something that first took place within the great monastic estates. And in the arena of government, church-inspired reason brought about the modern development and the idea of democracy, freedom for every individual person, not merely for the 1% of those wealthy elites who live off the slave labor of the masses of their civilizations. And that brings us to the second factor of the culture of Christ that has been transforming our world, the rise of individualism and freedom that God treats all people equally is fundamental to the Christian message. According to the Bible, 
every individual human person has value in himself because each person has particular special value to God, who in Psalm 139 inspired David to write, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And we have been given a free will and so are responsible to God for our choices. These are central doctrines to the culture of Christ. As these biblical doctrines, uh, and as these biblical doctrines of the worth of the individual, the equality of each person, and the right to personal freedom took root in medieval Europe, that culture began to change. For example, due to the influence of the culture of Christ, women were granted greater worth and dignity. Due to the influence of the culture of Christ, slavery in Europe ended in medieval times and was stopped again in 19th century Europe and America. Even the presumed divine right of kings fell victim to the culture of Christ. What started with the signing of the Magna Carta at Runnymede in the year 12. 15 AD, gradually but inexorably led to the signing of the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia in 1776. That's how the first lasting democracy in, the world, in world history was established. It was a political system which was born out of the culture of Christ. The supremacy of readism, the freedom of the individual, and then a third factor by which the culture of Christ has been transforming the world the expectation of progress. The entire story of Christianity is wrapped up in the idea of progress. Christians worship a God who progressively revealed himself to his people, culminating in the entry of the God-man into the world to reveal most clearly the love of God the Father and to announce the arrival of the culture of the kingdom of heaven. Central to the idea of conversion in Christianity is the concept of repentance. And repentance involves progress toward learning and growing in faith and character as we come to understand God's word. Also central to Christianity is an expectation of the future blessing of being welcomed into God's presence for eternity. So what effect has the Christian expectation of progress in learning produced in our culture? Over the last 1,500 years, Christianity has been the fountain from which mankind's surge of technology and innovation has emerged. The culture of Christ has transformed farming into agriculture, alchemy into chemistry, astrology into astronomy, and it has transformed slavery-based economics into capitalism and free enterprise. That's at this point that I must end our first look into the culture of Christ and its restorative effect on the values and cultures of this world. Today we have considered my first two points. That first, that the culture of Christ produces great contrast with the values of humanity, which humanity holds. Second, that the culture of Christ produces real consequences in human history. And next time we'll look more deeply into its impact on science, economics, and human freedom, and we'll consider my third point, that the culture of Christ will produce a radical personal change in the lives of those who follow Christ. So how should we respond to what we have learned 
about God, the God of the Bible today. First, as followers of Christ, I think we should be more aware of the drastic contrast between the kingdom of God and the, uh, the kingdoms of this world. You should become more aware of how you personally have been changed by the culture of Christ through the constant ministry that the Holy Spirit of God has had on your soul. You are not the same person you were before God started making all things new in your life. Maybe you should take time to ponder the difference that Jesus has made in your life. We should also be more aware of how easy it is for us to intuitively revert to the impulses of the culture of the world in which we live and the corrupting influence that that brings to daily living. Secondly, we should respond in astonishment to what we have learned about how remarkably active God has been in redeeming and transforming this present world. The world is not the same as it was before God started making all things new by confronting the kingdoms and cultures of this world. It's a mustard seed conspiracy that has almost imperceptibly brought new prosperity and new hope into the lives of billions of ordinary people who have been blessed by the wisdom, mercy, and common grace which God extends to all humankind. Thirdly, you should respond by acknowledging that God's grace is at work in you to bring about a transformation in your personal culture. God will do this because he intends to work through his people who have become citizens of heaven and who now have a mission to continue the work of Christ by becoming a blessing to citizens of the earth. Let me end with this encouragement, which the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Be confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Lord God, bring these thoughts to our minds and help us to understand the surprising reality of your work among us, of your work among people of all tribes and nations of cultures. And grant to us, Lord, insight to understand your awesome, marvelous work to change and to redeem this world and to bring it back toward the perfection with which you created it. We pray this in the name of Jesus.